Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Today's episode is with Scott Witt, who was a management consultant and acquired a clinical trials company. The reason I love this story is because it ultimately really goes the way this is supposed to. He identified a business that was, frankly, amateurly run, and he was a management consultant. So the opportunity there was to come in and professionalize an amateur business and really take it to the next level, which is exactly what happened. It wasn't without risk. It wasn't without heartache. But he now is sitting on a $3 million business, up from eight hundred k in revenues when he acquired it. Without further ado, here's Scott. So Scott Witt, thank you for being here with me today. You are based in North Carolina in Chapel Hill or Chapel Hill area. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, our clinic's in Greensboro, about an hour away, but we, we live in Chapel Hill. Okay, Greensboro, North Carolina. And you acquired Triad Clinical Trials in 2016 and right. have grown revenue significantly. I think you've tripled it uh, since then. So that, th- those are the broad strokes. I want to hear uh, that story from how you acquired the business, what the, what the search process was like, and, and, and the actual terms of the deal to the extent that you can talk about those. And then what's happened in the intervening five years that, that has resulted in this 3x revenue growth. Sound good? Sure. Why don't we start then with uh, your uh, relevant background? You don't need to go back to the very beginning, uh, but the, the the background that's relevant to this story and what led you to look to acquire a business? Uh, probably thirty plus years in healthcare, uh, mostly on the administration side, working in uh, first operations and then technology uh, and then management consulting. I kind of moved around as my attention wandered. Uh, I've got uh, ADHD, as many folks who who end up in this 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 place have, uh, and it was it was a fantastic career. I, I came out of a you know a, a mid level state school, uh, mid level students, and ended up as a partner at Deloitte Consulting, and that's that's a very rare sort of sort of occurrence. Um, when when I got to Deloitte, um, I thought I'd really reached the pinnacle of my career. I was going to ride out my time there and you know be be a prince of that that particular realm. Uh, you know, but, but it became clear that you know partnership in a consulting entity has its rewards and its values, but it won't really take you to the place where I thought I could go, unless of course you end up running the, the entire group. So it's mm-hmm. a very rarefied level of a very rarefied level of people who make partner, whoever make it, uh, you know, a final final go, and that's kind of the dirty truth mm-hmm. with that. But had. Um, they gave us a lot of financial counseling as part of the partnership onboarding process because uh, you do take a pretty substantial jump in income. Suddenly, you have a lot of cash coming in, but you've got a lot of responsibilities because you're also a part of the business. So it put me in that space of thinking about business as an owner, not just as an employee, even though technically I got a paycheck every uh, every week and great benefits and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved on from there, I ended up at a company called Quintiles. Uh, they're the largest CRO on the planet. They they invented the the business effectively. That's a that's a clinical research organization. So they work with pharmaceutical companies and biotechs, and they take over the clinical trial process. So if you're a mad scientist with you know two million dollars in venture capital funding, and there's lots of those guys out there right now, you go to a Quintiles or somebody like that, say, hey, go run our clinical trials. So I spent time working in their strategy shop and in their um, working for the CEO at the time, I was looking to turn that more into a consulting entity, which is why I ended up there. Uh, I spent time uh, learning a little bit about how clinical trials worked and what it's like to actually do them from uh, a local side, actually run them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the back of my mind, when I really figured out that Deloitte was not going to be in my long-term plan, which was you know personally disappointing. Um, I started thinking about what what would be next and where, okay. where would I go, and that's you know, so probably 2012 2011. I started in earnest looking for a business to acquire. You know, what, what, what the the first thing they taught they said to us when we hit the ground at um, at uh, partner inductions is don't buy a boat. 
That's the worst thing you could possibly do is take all this new money and go get a second house or a boat or, or a second wife. You know, that stuff's just going to ruin your life. It seems <laughs> like a good idea at first. And then, then everybody ends up regretting it. So my wife and I sat down and we, you know, we just started banking the extra cash, banking the bonuses. We had cash to play with. Um, always had a very good credit rating. Uh, so we, we had a good place to start. And I probably looked at the buy, bid, sell. There's five or six other sites like that. Um, looked at a bunch of stuff. I probably sat down with seven or eight brokers over those couple of years and probably seven or eight business owners looking to sell. And uh, just like when you're making a big step, you don't, it's very easy to set and look at a deal or an opportunity or a person you're going to marry and say, here's all the things I like. Here's the stuff that could work. Here's what could be amazing. Yeah. And I took a very negative, not negative, but anti-positive approach. Like, why will this not work? Yeah. And what's going to go wrong here that's going to make me regret leaving my, my, my cushy job and putting my, my savings into it? There was always one or two major factors in each one of those businesses. And um, I had actually accepted a role at Accenture, a Deloitte competitor, fairly high-level job, um, when this business came on, came available. And uh, I kept looking for reasons to walk away from it. And I couldn't come up with a good one, uh, other than I wanted the prestige of being a you know, managing director at Accenture. And that's not, you know, no, nobody really cares about that at the end of the day. Hmm. So we uh, contacted the broker, or we'd been in discussions with the broker. I sat down uh, with the business owner and really talked through her business model, what what she did, how she did it. Um, and she built a very strong brand, uh, a handful of key staff, uh, but everything else was a train wreck, quite frankly. But it was a train wreck that generated 70% margins. Wow. And, um, and I thought, with 70%, I got some time to figure things out. Yeah. Uh, and make some mistakes. And yeah. I had to, and, and I certainly did. But, uh, you know, the, the big thing was is that knowing the market, knowing healthcare, healthcare is not going away. Yeah. You know, if you, you follow healthcare, but it's when I started 30 years ago, it was 8% of GDP. Now it's 14% of GDP. Yeah. When you get to my age, it's going to be 22 or 23% of GDP. There's, yeah. It may be the only business left in the long run. <laughs> uh, so the demand is strong. Uh, I know the market for clinical trials, and I know they're complex and they're hard. But I'm a consultant. Complex and hard is what I do. Uh, the when owner you, had. When you a, say it was a train wreck, that that whatever falls under the umbrella of that train wreck wasn't enough to scare you off. Whereas these previous deals you'd look at, you had gotten scared off. Well, tra train wreck's an exaggeration. You know, I, I do a lot of selling, so I like hyperbola. Um, <laughs> but you know, the this the woman who started it uh, was a, a nurse practitioner. I'm sorry, a physician's assistant. Um, knew nothing about business, learned it all the hard way. Uh, made the bare minimum investment in everything, including very nice clinic building, which we bought, but everything else like third-hand computers, not up-to-date, not safe. Third and fourth-hand office equipment, unreliable and all broke. Um, hired medical, sort of first-level medical staff right out of community college. Clueless, useless, but cheap. So there was all, she had ongoing quality issues. She had huge scalability problems because she had to do everything herself. I mean, literally, she showed me how she did um, payroll. It was a, you know, a big blue checkbook calculator, and she would download the withholding tables from the wow. IRS and state ARS, and she'd get a pencil and a calculator and hand, hand calculate um, payroll. Uh, there was no website. Why would you websites unimportant? We know who our clients are and the people we recruit come find us. Um, and uh, she spent a lot of her time actually seeing patients, doing data entry, uh, and that business just got better and better and better. She didn't know how to hire, or delegate, or to automate. You know, we we invested a lot in systems that were pretty expensive up front, but now it's paying dividends because we're just much more efficient and effective. And that was that was not her mindset. And, um, you know, so I looked at all that in totality and I had seen many big clients in healthcare have a very similar mentality. You know, we, this all worked when we were, you know, $200 billion a year, but now we're a billion dollars a year. We don't understand why it's not working. So I fixed a lot of those things as a, as a consultant. Uh, and again, I knew the pipeline and the demand for clinical research is strong. And it's only gotten stronger since we get here. 
I know COVID has been a super accelerator of that, but that was happening before. Yeah. And it's happening, you know, once this no, once that all goes away, it's still going to be, the, the demand is strong and growing for reasons if you want to get into it can. But I felt like it was there with those margins in the name. I could make a bunch of stupid mistakes and probably not lose my house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's why we pulled the trigger on it. I mean, and from a personal side, um, I had been traveling daily for years, barely knew my kids. I was exhausted on the weekends. I'm told I thought it was fine. Uh, my <laughs> wife had stayed home, uh, for 10, you know, 12 years, raising, raising our boys, uh, was looking for something. And we thought this would be an opportunity. And she's, you know, she's twice as smart as me. She's a former uh, state department, uh, diplomats, warrant officer, multiple, you know, multiple languages, uh, her peers are ambassadors now. You know their name in the news. So she's you know way more qualified to run a business than I've ever been. So it was a pretty good partnership. It was rocky, you know, getting all of it done. We financed it with personal savings, personal guarantees, and an SBA loan. Well, actually, Scott, and, uh, before we get into that, I want to um, because that that will be one of my questions. But let me uh, back up a little bit. When you were deciding that you wanted to buy a business because you'd made partner or you got into a certain level at Deloitte and you had. This, you're banking all this cash. Uh, why did you decide to buy a business? I'm sure. I'm sure Deloitte was. That was probably not the, the thing they they were recommending to all the partners to invest their money in. Right after the, the second home and the boat and the second wife, because that's just gonna that's just gonna mean attrition for them, right? You're just gonna leave your job at Deloitte if you do that. Um, so why why was that your why was that your why was that where you wanted to put your money rather than whatever other options they were they were in, uh, suggesting? Well, I, again, the, the partnership model and consulting, and even the ones that are publicly traded, like uh, you know, no, no Accenture, that model is just kind of there's two there's two pyramids in those organizations. There's the employee pyramid. You come in, you know, bright shiny MBA, work you 90 hours a week plus travel. If you're too stupid to quit, then we promote you. To, you know, you work your way through it, and then you get to you know, managing director or partner. They're all in different terms. So basically, you become a an owner of that company at some level, that organization, and now you have a hand in running it. And it really becomes lucrative, hugely lucrative and uh, scalable. If you've got 10 years to go, you've done you've done 12 years getting through that first pyramid, probably another 20 years to get through that second one to get to that point where you're consistently making seven figures. You've got a solid, um, uh, retirement account built up. So when you cash out, you know, the golden, you get, you get the golden keys and they unlock and you go. So if you're a mid-level partner, mid-level executive there, and I was 49, 50 when that, that happened. Uh, I just, I just laid it out that this just isn't, there just isn't enough runway okay. to, um, to get me where, where, hey, where I want to go, where I think I can go. Uh, and then as I looked around to go back into industry or go back into technology, um, you know, I was more more of the same. There's going to be a, a layer of people that make it into Forbes and Fortune that is super rich and super wealthy, but then there's a huge strata of people underneath that that do well. I mean, certainly one percent. I would, you know, I I was the first in my family to go to college. Most of my uh, my cousins and relatives don't, didn't go to college. I'm fabulously well to do financially relative to where I came from, but not not going to hit the stratosphere, and, and we won't see it. Uh, but this gives me more control. Um, I can really focus on the things that I love and what I want to do. Uh, and I haven't been on an airplane two years. Yeah. And I was. Well, none of us have, know, in fairness. Yeah. Well, even, <laughs> but even that, I, when I left for, when I left, when I left service five years ago, chairman's preferred on American double platinum secret diamond on Delta. I mean, I, you know, I was. I had my own ambassador at Starwood. I mean, I lived on the road. Yeah. And uh, so this is those, those two, those two things. And, and some of it was um, just what, also, you know, what is that right opportunity? What's going to make me happy? What's going to, I mean, obviously I'd rather you know, drink whiskey and play tennis. That's what makes me happy. But uh, I got to be able to feed my family and, and have some meaningful work. So that was, that was part of it too. And again, you know, there's there's a there's an elite crust in, uh, of people in all these organizations that have amazing jobs and wonderful opportunities and are surrounded by amazing teams. You know that they're in the news because that's those are freaks. That's not how a lot of the corporate world works. It's a yeah. lot of 
Uh, and, you know, again, except for a handful of people, you're, you're a commodity in these organizations. Like if you're useful to us now, that's fantastic. But if we change our mind or our model changes or you've got a little too much gray hair, we're gonna, you, you, off you go. Yeah. And uh, these are, um, I've been way too dramatic, but that's, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the sense there. So this insulates me from, from all of that. We've got nothing sure. but upside until we decide to cash out of the business. And why did you choose to go about looking for a business to acquire rather than starting something from scratch? Because that would be the other. Uh, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, obviously, speaking of the news and the media, that's those are the stories we hear about in the media. Acquiring a business is, is far less common. What, what, what led you to that rather than starting something from scratch? So I, I've worked with a ton of startups, are familiar with a ton of startups. And I really, the world I know is healthcare. I mean, I understand that there are other industries out there because I buy things from them, but I don't know diddly squat about cell phones or automotive or tech, you know, entertainment, that kind of stuff. But I watched a lot of my peers in healthcare say, well, I'm smart. I got a network. I got a million dollars from my mother-in-law and some equity in my house. I'm going to go start my own business. And most of them failed and they failed slowly and painfully and expensively. It's really difficult in this industry to start from scratch and get to critical mass. Most people mm -hmm. run out of cash way before that happens. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to put myself through that. I mean, I hired back three or four people who I used to work for in the consulting world who went out on their own and it just didn't work out. And they're, you know, they were, they loved it at first, but it drained all of their financial resources or, or most of them. And they grudgingly went back to consulting or back into, you know, the commercial side of the business, you know, with having not as much experience and, Maybe the level they left, sometimes below, it wasn't an uplifting experience. Yeah. And what it comes down to in healthcare, it's so regulated, it's so conservative, um, and you, it takes five to seven years to to really make it. And most companies don't have that kind of focus, and most VCs don't have that kind of focus. Um, I worked as an advisor to you know. Vietnam and Cygnus and United of the World and Blue Cross Blue Shield plans who would see an interesting new technology, like this is great. We're going to become their vendor and maybe we'll invest in them. It'll be great. And most of all of them just evaporated at some point because it takes so long to get traction. It's so hard to be compliant in this business um, that just a startup, unless something amazing happened, uh, or I, I fell in with a, with a VC or, or a PI guy or team who really got healthcare. I just didn't see, I saw the chances of success is one in 10. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and yet so, this, yeah, this nurse practitioner who founded triad or sorry, not nurse practitioner. She was a, what was her position? A physician, a PA. A physician. The PA. She, she, she was able to do it even being not sounds like not super business oriented. Well, she um, she flew under the radar, and the business did one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars a year for the first four or five years. Yeah, and then as she got more comfortable and aware, she had her name out there. Kind of years six and seven, she started getting more business, um, started hiring people, and that that got hard. And I think she just wasn't ready. To she knew what it took to to maintain kind of at that. I think her last the year we bought it, they topped their revenues at about eight fifty. Um, uh, and you know she she could not manage that not not the way she did it not without systems not without infrastructure not yeah. without high quality people you can you can delegate it to okay. uh, I saw the trajectory I had a pretty good sense of where that business could go you know, we walked into a great brand name uh, you know the name still I got a call today from a biotech in um, California uh, Salsalito who's starting to bring some drugs in from China and wants to, needs to put them through cr clinical trials here. But he said, yeah, I worked with you guys seven or eight years ago. You're amazing. I really want you to start looking at these trials with us. And, you know, she's long gone, but the brand name is really good. That's phenomenal. And so we bought that. Uh, we, we had two physicians that came with the business and they're beyond fabulous. And um, well, Scott, you know, let, me, but of, let me back up real sure. quick. So you, when you, you and your wife decided you were going to buy a business, what were your criteria? Uh, it sounds like health, I assume everything was in healthcare. It had to be in the healthcare industry. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. Um, what, what were some of the other criteria, including you know, what you wanted to spend or whatever criteria there were? 
And, and, and what did that well, search look like? You, you, did you reach out to local business brokers or what? Walk us through that. It was, it was pretty haphazard, honestly. I, I, maybe if I had done a structured search, um, uh, it would have, something would have, would have come along sooner. So I signed up for most of the websites. Um, when I would see a business, I'll talk about the criteria in a minute. Uh, the I thought was a good fit, I'd talk to the broker. If the broker seemed like they know what they were doing and was honest and upfront, then we'd go to the next step and we'd have a conversa- phone conversation with the business owner. If they seemed legit, um, and if they had an exit plan, I walked away from a couple of businesses because I talked to one guy who ran a pretty profitable insurance brokerage. He goes, yeah, I just want to go ski. And, you know, he was probably going to pay two or $3 million for the business, but, you know, he would have burned through that in two or three years. And he's, he was younger than I was at the time. It's so like, you're going to come back and start up a new business and come get your clients. And I can sue you for that, but I've already lost when that's happened. Yeah. So, so the criteria was healthcare, something that generated at least a 50% margin, you know, over, over costs, because you need that compliance is hard. I was going to have debt service. Um, I needed to pay myself probably more than some other entrepreneurs do. Cause I, you know, we did manage our lifestyle, but I had kids going to college. I had a you know, BMW fetish at the time. That's all that stuff's expensive. That's, that's gone now, by the way. Um, <laughs> so we, you know, that had to fit all those had to be stable. And you um, needed some margin of safety. I mean, you needed to be able to have room to make exactly. mistakes. Yeah, exactly. So you start with the margin, you start with the, the owner, you start with the broker, the broker is a huge, huge, and even great ones are going to fuck you over. Sorry for the language. Right. Um, they just are. It is, uh, you know, that's a very trepidatious because I'm actually on the market now looking, I'm looking at a couple different things. <clears throat> I'll tell you where we are now and what's driving me up, but that's, you know, I, I am as concerned about that broker going into it as I was about the owner the first time around. So I did learn the hard way. Okay. And what, so were those, like, what price range were you looking at? I assume that was one of the big criteria. So probably minimum would have been what we bought because I know I could buy that easily on our own. You know, could I find an ongoing business at $5 million or $10 million that fit all of those criteria and gotten a larger SBA loan? Probably. Um, could have found some passive investors to, to take us to that next level. Um, and sometimes I look back and think maybe I should have done that because, you know, <clears throat> scaling to 10 million from 5 million is way easier than, than, than scaling from 1 million to 10 million. Yeah. Um, but uh, this one just happened to fit all of that at the time. Uh, and had I taken that role at Accenture, I'd have been another five years wrapped up in that stuff. And I would have loved it, but I'd been five years older and it just seemed... You're never going to get everything you want. Just check enough of it yeah. to to seem like it was a good idea to pull the trigger. On. And so she was doing about the business was doing about eight hundred and fifty in revenue. Yeah, seventy percent margins. And then, can you say what you acquired it for? I think all in, we were at about two, just under two million for the business, and about half a million for the building and equipment. Two million for the business and half a million for the building and equipment. And how did you finance? Much. I'm sorry. Pretty modest. Um, it's fairly complex. We worked with uh, we got a an SBA lender that the broker knew, and uh, you know he's a great sales guy. It all looked rosy and picturesque. They um, they work with an entity down in uh, Texas. The guy's name is Monty Walker. Maybe somebody you want to know or somebody you want to interview for this this, this endeavor. He's fantastic. Monty Walker, <clears throat> but he's right? uh, Monty Walker. Yeah, Walker Advisory. Okay. Well, what he does is help you structure um, a C-Corp that you roll your personal cash into, you roll your IRAs into, and then you use that cash to acquire the business. And it's done in a legally very upfront uh, legally defensible way that banks will sign up for it. The SBA has signed off on that. And there are a number of entities out there that, that claim to do IRA business acquisition. And my understanding, I'm not expert, is that they're very much on um, uh, legally shaky ground when, when they do that. Monty runs a very tight, tight ship. And our compliance burden with him is very high. We, 
if we don't do what he says, I get a nasty call, very polite, nasty call from me. <clears throat> so it was a combination of cash, IRA, SBA loan with guarantee. Uh, you know, we put a lien on the equity in our house, put a lien on probably a million dollars worth of investments I had elsewhere, you know, pretty secure. But, um, you know, I knew within that range, you know, even if things went south, we crashed cratered for a year, um, which never came close to happening. Uh, you know, we'd be able to pull this out and, and, and keep, keep the, keep the, the ship afloat. And you knew that just because the business was so profitable. What, why did you have that certainty? Like how, how did well, you, how did you convince yourself that it might like that it, that it would just would never go to zero, you know, worst case scenario couldn't happen. Um, so having worked in healthcare and knowing something about drug development for quintiles, you know, there is a site out there that's run by the National Institute of Health, NIH, it's called clinicaltrials.gov. So if you go out there, every clinical trial, any drug anywhere in the world that anybody would ever want to sell in the United States, which is every drug, uh, every study gets listed out there. And you can slice and dice it. I downloaded all that data. You know, it's public domain, it's free to use. And I looked at, you know, for the 80,000 clinical trials that have run anywhere in the world last, over the last 10 years, 20,000 of them are open now or were open then. Another 10,000 were in the process of getting ready to open and start recruiting. Uh, most of those clinical trials never make their recruiting goals. You know, that ability to run a clinical trial, find Subjects get into the trial, stay in the trial, pay it out is very valuable. It's very rare. It's getting harder all the time. <clears throat> and I knew from looking at the financials, looking at how the business model worked, that this woman had figured all that out. Didn't scale well. Could have been done. Couldn't have been much, done much more efficiently because she didn't spend money on anything at all. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I had enough room to make investments to be much more efficient about it, be much more structured. Should circumstances come to pass that there is no, there would be no demand for clinical trials, we're in such an economic depression, or there's been such a revolution in the financing of healthcare that I'm hosed anyway. Yeah. So we never say never, but you know, apart from doing a Walter White and uh, (laughs) making crack in a uh, in a in a mobile home in an RV, this is as secure as a business that would that, that that would come. You just dated yourself by referring to crack. I think it was meth. Crack meth. is very 1980s. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Biker meth. Biker meth. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. And so this deal, uh, and, and so Triad was her was her brand because I noticed on your LinkedIn right. now it's Triamed is kind of the parent organization, but I should refer to it as Triad. Triad's fine. Yeah. Nobody knows who Triad is. We just, it's for legal purposes. Okay. Triad. Um, uh, so where, where was this particular deal? Where did it come from? Did it come from a local broker? Did it come from one of the websites? So I think it was on buy, biz, sell. Uh, put, like, you know, cl- yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I lost track of there's three or four I was signed up with. Um, I filled out the form and the broker called me and we walked through it and he was, he was looking at, um, I think he had, he brought four buyers to the table. And I was able to get their bid packages because that's a lot of the business now that belongs to me. And I went through it. Um, yeah, I think we made the most compelling case for to remit to understand the business and, and remain successful. And um, I think she wa- she wanted to be sure that the I mean, since her legacy, she wanted to be sure the business would be in good hands and and, and not not be, be you know not go broke or run afoul of the regulatory agencies and, and, and that kind of stuff. But that was, and I'm sure I filled out that. Yeah, I can remember now sitting in a airport lounge talking to Ron, the, the broker, initially, and then setting up a time to come meet the owner. But yeah, I think I definitely found it through the website. Okay. And so she liked your your offer, not strictly for financial reasons, but because she thought the business would be in the most competent hands with you. Right. Um, you know, I think what I did, which was both foolish and smart, was I went with the SBA lender that the broker had a relationship with had pre-vetted the business. <clears throat> I think, I know, because I was approached by other SBA lenders with more attractive financing, mm-hmm. but I, we would have lost two or three months in the due diligence process. Um, 
so I may have had a better financial offer from my standpoint, but I think we would have lost the business to a better prepared buyer. Yeah. So we slightly overpaid for speed and and smoothness. Now, yeah. do I regret doing that? There are days I regret doing that. Uh, but I think in the sense of expediency, that's what won the day. Like we we were the first to have a check in their hand on the earnest deposit. Yeah. Um, you know, we had solid financing ready to go. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, always nervous. It's like going to a car dealer and signing up for everything they put in front of you. It's, it's never a wise mistake, but it gets you out on the road much more quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, I think that was kind of what, what, what helped too. And, okay. you know, having been an executive at Quintiles and Quintiles is one of our bigger clients right now. Um, you know, she felt like I'd be able to, I had, I had to have the network. You know, if I needed to call the CEO at Quintiles, I could go talk to him. I never need yeah. to do that. And that would not be appropriate. But you know, I can reach out, and I'm comfortable. You know, I've negotiated with these CEOs, CFOs, CEOs of Fortune 100 companies. I mean, this doesn't. She was very, you know, she was a w- woman growing up in the rural, semi-rural South. You know, jerks like me in suits and big offices intimidated her. Yeah. You know, I think that does not bother me at all. So she felt, again, I'm kind of competing the other stuff she said and what the broker said after we signed the deal. But I think that's was what she wanted. There were some folks. There was uh, one guy who was a physician who wanted to buy the business, um, and it sounds like he didn't really understand what he was doing. And then there was a, a another couple who owned five or six car washes that were pretty profitable, and they were just looking for something to diversify. And I, you know, that's her call to what she liked about them or disliked about them. But you know, I felt one of the reasons I wanted the business is I felt anything we need. I either know what to do, I know who to call, or I've got enough experience to figure it out yeah. before it turns into a crisis. Yeah, yeah, that's huge, obviously. I mean, for, yeah. for her, but but also for you. Uh, sure, sure. I mean, I mean, I have a lot more confidence acquiring this business as you versus as a, an owner of car washes. Um, right, right. So, so what was day one look like? You acquire the business. Uh, and then you come in and greet the employees to just, you know, kind of what, what, what's your, where's your headspace? What, what does that look like? It's got to so, be an intimidating moment. Uh, well, you know, this is probably a neurological deficit of mine, but you know, I, I'm a, my, my role for years was always rainmaker deal hunter. So when you close the deal that first day, it's just, that's like, your, that's like your, 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 your wedding day and the day you lose your virginity on the same, <laughs> you know, it's like, this is, this is, you know, it needs you, you know, share these comments and a little blue, but it is just the best day. So I walk in there and uh, like here, you know, I've worked for Quintiles and it was business. My wife and I are going to run it and we're very excited. You know, we, we didn't buy this because it's a great building. We bought it because you guys have been doing great work for years. And this is true. I mean, I've lived and died by my team. So I can look back on my consulting successes that have been over the moon, that's because I had a great team. And when yeah. I've struggled or occasionally failed, it's because I didn't have the right people. Yeah. So I made it very clear that, you know, we bought this for you, not the building or the name or the cash flow that has very little value without you. Um, so I spent time with the owner, spent time with the, the physician. The, we have a medical director who serves as principal investigator. He's very, very important. Spent time with him. And he and I bonded very well. He's such a, such a good guy. My wife was kind of watching the room, and I think she just kind of saw the look of horror and panic in every other staff member's face. The more I spoke, the more uncomfortable they were with the situation. Um, and, Wait, why? You know, as, well, so as I learned and pieced things together, because we had 100% turnover those first three or four months, like except for Dr. Montgomery and what's our 99.5%, like everybody left. Either one or two, we just had to fire. Like you have no clue what you're doing. And you're not even nice about it. You're not trying. Um, I think that the previous owner had become so tense over the negotiations and all the work that had to be done, you know, because she didn't have computer files. She didn't have historical contracts. She didn't have accounts receivables documented. You know, she was sort of jitting all this up in the background while trying to run the business. Uh, and I think she was very stressed. And I think that stress was communicated to all the employees who two had left had already found, had job offers in hand the day the deal closed. Um, and looking back on their work, I think we would have had to fire them anyway. Because again, the previous owner hired 
very inexperienced people at the lowest possible uh, hourly rate yeah. and figure she could go back in and clean up their work afterwards, which we wouldn't do. We couldn't do. We've never done that job. I'm not a physician or a nurse. And that's not how you get work done. You, know, yeah. you have to be able to delegate to people who, 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 who do things. So that first day was just really understanding, you know, what, what looked solid and reliable uh, and actionable based on, you know, their business plan and the, the marketing package versus the reality of what was there and what, what, what had to be done. So that was, yeah, that's, that's a long, feels like a century ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Well, I, so I assume I want to ask about the challenges uh, uh, that you encountered um, when you first acquired the business. Uh, and it sounds like you've just answered that, which is turnover. Um, but it also sounds like maybe you were, ex- that wasn't quite, wasn't maybe a challenge. It was maybe the people who left of their own volition that was welcome because you, it avoided you having to let them go yourself. And you knew that they weren't going to, one of the things that you were going to change was the quality of the personnel there. So anyway, what what were the challenges um, or the, the biggest challenge that you found once you became owner in that first two or three months? So the, the biggest thing is that the, uh, the backlog and pipeline were wildly overstated. Overstated. Yeah, overstated. Such that I would, I did worry about the viability of the business, and I did engage a litigator to review everything we had to potentially go back and get some money back from the, the previous owner. We, oh. did, we decided against, we decided against doing that. Um, he felt we had a very strong case, but he said, honestly, it'll take us two years. You may get half a million back, maybe three hundred thousand after my fees, but you need to spend that time and energy getting this thing turned around. Wow. So, um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, uh, the, the business ran on a cash basis and we still run on a cash basis. Um, the, um, the contracts are written per enrolled patient and sometimes patients drop out, sometimes studies end early and sometimes you may have a contract for 15 or 20 patients, but you know, you're slow or for the reason that you can only get five or six hit. Um, and it really looks like six months before the deal closed, the, the previous owner really took her foot off the gas in terms of marketing and seeking out studies, um, new clinical trials. Now, you know, there's a bunch that are open for very complex indications or very rare indications. I could, if I made three phone calls today, have five contracts in two weeks for studies, it'd be almost impossible to deliver. You, know, you really want to spend time finding things that are going to be in your sweet spot, things you can enroll well. She'd really take her foot off the, the gas there. So, um, you know, I basically put a lot of the investments and process change and some of the hiring on hold so I could strictly focus in on business developments, you know, making new contacts, reaching out to old colleagues in the business and just really building that pipeline back up. And it took me about six months to get that pipeline back into shape to where I thought the business was when we bought it. Um, well, fortunately for yeah, you, rain, rain making is your thing. Yeah. If I didn't have those contacts or just the willingness to keep on the phone until people called me back, that could have been a moment. And, um, and I mean, you must've been, I mean, even though you were pretty confident, there was a lot of margin of safety in this deal. I mean, to, to an, I think this is what scares off a lot of would be acquirers is the prospect that you face, that you in fact face, which is you you buy the business and then you find out this revenue this that you're depending on is not going to materialize. Uh, right. So so what, how, how are those conversations between you and your wife? Were you guys scared or, or did you basically have confidence that you could pull it out? <laughs> Scott, I lost your, uh, your, your video. Yeah, um, no, sorry. Hey, the, uh, there we go. No, a call came through. Um, I'm on my iPhone. Um, those were, I think we upped our alcohol intake significantly, um, at that point. <laughs> yeah, no, same thing we did during the pandemic. Um, she, I mean, she, I don't think she, it, it was about 18 months later as she began to take on more responsibility in the business. She looked back and really understood how precarious that situation was. Yeah. You know, her, her degree is Russian studies, <laughs> you know, she's multilingual, she used to manage the consular section in embassies, and then she stayed home and raised kids. She does it. She has an amazing business head now. I mean, she's a fantastic partner, 
uh, in terms of the business. And, but you know, no, none of that background before. So I just said, Hey, this is dicey. Um, there was, uh, some money residual cash flow in the business that the owner claimed by the contract, you know, probably additional three or $400,000 they anticipated would be handed over to them for lots of reasons. I just put my lawyer on making that stop. And so we had lots of ugly, unpleasant conversations oh. with the owners. And, you know, we had the owners because we made some of those payments. And when I realized where we were, um, you know, I called them into the clinic, sit down and said, we're going to talk about this stuff. You know, we're going to be God of business if I give you this money. And it was pretty ugly, nasty, which I'm used to. I mean, I've been in lots of contentious negotiations, but my wife was a little stressed out about all that. And so we, so, we were. So your lawyer, your lawyer advised against uh, suing for to reclaim some of the purchase price. But right. but in fact, you did. You had a schedule of payments that you were going to pay the previous owner that you did arrest. You said, we're not going to pay. Right. Okay. Right. So ultimately, she, under, did, she did not get her full price. She did not. She did not. Probably two or $300,000 less than she had uh, anticipated. And so the other underlying thing is that we didn't really get and where she was materially misleading was the cash collection cycle. In healthcare, it's notoriously slow. And yeah. here, even more so. Uh, you know, if you own a clinic, you know, people show up and if you're treating them, they show you their Blue Cross card, they give you their copay. And by state law, Blue Cross is going to give you a check within 14 days when so they pay interest and penalties. Um, here, we get paid per visit. Most of our income is per visit for uh, a um, patient in the study. Uh, but when that, once that visit is completed, all the data has got to be entered. They've got to look at the data. Yeah, this is complete. It's good. It's a good visit. Now we'll put that in our payment process. So it can be a month before they look at that data. And the contract can be, it's still very typical to have 90-day payment cycles in this business. So I don't yeah. take that anymore. Uh, well, unless I can get a good private, I can do that, but you have to cover my float and, and then some. Uh, so we were looking at, based on everything she told us and the, the financial information that she shared, which was not complete, you know, I estimated a average of 45 days cash collection. Uh, and it was closer, to, it was well over 120, maybe wow. 140. Wow. And so it was just like, I know we're going to get this money, but we, we may not be around the, the cash to check. Um, and so the, we, the lawyer pulled on that because yeah, you've got a great case here. You missed some things in due diligence that are going to be your fault. The judge is going to ding you for that. And I agreed, but you know they were materially misleading in, in a lot of things. And so, what what had you missed in due diligence? I mean, you've explained you've explained the situation, but what specifically could you have done, or could you have asked or pressed her on during due diligence to have uncovered this? Well, I, I think part of what made the business attractive was the lack of systems and structure and, and process. So. You know, she, when you say operated on a cash basis, truly a cash basis, didn't know week to week, month to month, quarter to quarter, what cash was going to arrive, regardless of the underlying work activity. There was no system in place to adequately track that. So this was all a, um, you know, kind of literally had hand, not kidding, she had hand-drawn spreadsheets with a ruler and a pencil um, saying, well, I've got this many patients, they've completed this many visits, they have this many outstanding, and get your calculator out, and here's the bottom line. Wow. And, you know, she had missed a lot of things. Some of the studies ended early. So what was presented is, you know, we I estimated from everything I had in front of me that there was probably a million and a half dollars of backlog. Now, that's backlog, not pipeline, backlog, like book work. It ended up being a about $500,000. So there was probably a million dollar mess. Um, you know, apart from getting into the building and spending a week or two going through all the files and verifying with all the charts, which was never going to happen. You know, she was not going to tolerate that. Um, you know, I just, I was, I probably, so a little myopic, probably wildly optimistic about what was really there because I wanted this business to happen. I wanted this deal to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I got my, my emotions got out ahead of my, my logic on, on that. So, um, and I think that's a common problem in acquisitions like this. If you're buying a, 
donut shop, you know, doesn't matter if you're on cash basis or a curl basis. Just your flour comes in, the fried donuts go out the door, and it's a, it's all to, in the cash register. You know, you're dealing with services like that. I think it is very hard to to nail down backlog. Yeah. Um, if you're not on a accrual accounting basis with a reliable system underlying and we're we're still not we're still operating on cash and i've got a much better understanding of i keep getting messages that's what i'm doing that sorry um i have a much better understanding of where we are on an accrual basis but i think we're probably two to three years from moving to an accrual basis for for accounting okay okay well um i mean it sounds like it's hard for you to advise like another business buyer um, in a situation like this, because um, as you said, I mean, to to really have uncovered, I mean, because it's a cash business and because the existing business owner wasn't going to let you come in and camp out in the business for two weeks to really see under the hood, at some point there was kind of nothing more you could have done. Uh, it sounds like that's what you're saying. I mean, I guess the question is, what would you advise your past self to do or, or some other would-be business buyer um, to do uh, if they're buying a clinical trials business. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working with two guys down in Florida. They run a, a chain of wholesale coffee roasters uh-huh. and somebody's got an uncle who's a doctor and they're, so they're looking to buy clinical research sites. Oh. So they send me, they send me a couple pounds of free coffee every month. And I spend an hour or two on the phone with them. Oh. So kind of walking them through it. So I, I feel like I can, um, you know, you, you've got to, <laughs> I, I think you've got to have some confidence and maybe an irrational confidence that even if this is as bad as it could be, it's still a workable deal. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to do it. And again, I think I did in the interest of expediency, wanting the opportunity for lots of reasons uh, and knowing even if it's really awful, I can pull it out. I think that I gave myself some implicit permission to be a little bit sloppy. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of the decision because part of this is, getting the deal closed has a value in and of itself that yeah. has figures into the price of the business. Yeah. You know, I've, I've done acquisitions for healthcare companies and due diligence is a very different process, you know, uh, very different from what we do here because it's, it's so small. But what I tell these guys is like, you really, really understand that backlog. And yeah. here's how I would define backlog. Here are the things that make backlog that, you know, depreciate the value of backlog. Make sure you factor that in before you put a price on it. And pipeline is, you know, I can show you five versions of my pipeline that are, you know, we're going to make $2 million next year. I could make $30 million next year based on all the potential deals out there. That pipeline is a, a work of erotic fiction. In, most, in, my, in my mind, it's, you know, it's, and unless you really know these companies, you know, you're going to get this and you feel like you're going to roll those studies, it's not. You know, really shouldn't into your and they really push the potential pipeline as part of this. Um, so it's you know, again, I, I think for any entrepreneur or business owner at this level, now if you're going in to buy a $50 million company with private equity backing and you've got analysts and better information to work with, you do a very different sure. much more structured due diligence. And you come you have not without having these issues, but that's not that's not where we are. No, no. And that's not who the, who our audience is. Okay. Right. We're we're bumping up on time, so I just want to, uh, but I want to make sure we touch on um, what has happened since. So you went through this very challenging, you know, once you took ownership of the business, but according to what I cited earlier, you you've tripled revenue. So so just tell me, kind of tell me what's happened in these in these last three or four years, uh, and how close you've come to what you what you had hoped. Well, we've gotten we have a much better staff. We just very experienced clinical research people who are emotionally and mentally committed to doing clinical trials. They've been nurses in physicians' practices or CMAs, and you know, they love the research side of it. They're intrigued by the science, but they just love. So in, when you're a patient in a clinical research study, when you come into the clinic, you're here for sometimes at least an hour. Sometimes you're here for 12 hours. Yeah. So you get a lot of time with our doctor. You get a lot of time with the nurse. We need to know everything about you. You're the center of our world. You're the most important piece. Of, you're the most important thing that's going to happen today. And people like that aspect of healthcare. You know, if you're in a practice right now, you're seeing 30 patients a day. Yeah. So that's not healthcare by some definitions. Yeah. So we have people that they get that 
Uh, you know, we offer we offer slightly lower compensation than some other companies in town, but we give them very flexible work life. Like it's spring break. I got three teenagers in there doing make work for six bucks an hour um, because their parents don't want them home playing video games all day. But, you know, that's, um, you know, so we try to start, we, we, we want that work-life balance for our employees that my wife and I were, were looking for. We found a handful of really great physicians to add on to Dr. Montgomery, our investigator, and they love the science. And they, when uh, the sponsors look at the resumes of the doctors I have, they just are so excited. We got a, a urologist, 25 years of experience, loves urology, and it just yeah. comes through. So they know we're going to take great care of these patients. Yeah, um, I've, I've outsourced a lot of our, I've hired a full-time recruiter. I got one guy who spends all day on the phone talking to people who've been in our studies before, answered our Facebook ads or Google ads, whatever. And he interviews them, gets all the healthcare data into the, the system, screens them for studies. So full-time patient recruitment. Um and we've gotten uh, very good at figuring out which studies we do really well on. And the last 15 studies we've done, we've hit our, our enrollment goal quickly, relatively quickly. And I would say there are five studies in the last 18 months, we're the top enrolling site in the country. Like nobody else in the country, there could be two or 300 other sites, sometimes it's less, nobody enrolled more than we did. Phenomenal. So it happens is now suddenly my overhead charges go from 20% to 35%. You know, my hourly rate for the recruiter, I can burden so much more revenue on each study because I, when I go after a study, I tell them, I'm going to do 20 people. You know, you're looking for 10, I could do 20. You give me some more advertising dollars and another, and, and let me hire another part-time recruiter. I, I could potentially do 30, but it's going to cost this. And then I stop talking. And if they waver, so we're not really into that. I said, well, okay, you know, we work with sponsors more engaged in their studies. So based on the quality of my staff, based on our results, I just negotiate much more aggressively. Mm -hmm. And I walk away from studies that are clients who are not, you know, it's, it's pretty clear when they send you the budget, it's like, well, we're looking to do this quickly and inexpensively. And I said, yeah, go push your development costs on somebody else. You know, we're not here to see if we can do something good for you and maybe we'll get paid. Um, and the big companies like Novartis, AstraZeneca, they love that. I mean, they're, if we can get, you know, it can take five or six years for drugs to go through the development pipeline. Yeah. And if I can be done a year ahead of some of the other sites, you know, they're, they're to market a year earlier. You yeah. Know, that's, that could be hundreds of millions of sure. dollars to that. So if you give me an extra $300,000 and they would have two years ago because I can, I perform better, you know, that's a very sellable deal. Sure, and that's that's kind of where I was with Deloitte. You call Deloitte when things are really serious. You got it done. Yeah, and I'd show up, and my partner rate was nine hundred bucks an hour, and you paid that rate not to me, unfortunately, but into the partnership. But that those are the things that is that have, have changed and really focused in on the right team, the right work, doing a great job, being able to verify that, and then using that as your your go to market message. And we just got very good with social media and our website. And, getting people interested in clinical trials. And so you acquired the business when it was 850 in revenue. And what is it? And that was in 2015? Yeah. Yeah. Closed 2015. And, and what is it? Uh, no, actually it rolled up. Yeah. So we're going to hit about probably right at 3 million. This year. Right at 3 million? Yeah. That's phenomenal. So that's, and we're out of space. In I, six gotta, years. I mean, we just, I just can't get more people in the building as it is. So we're, we're looking at expansion plans for a bigger building, different locations. But yeah. You said earlier that there's nothing but upside for this business. How, 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 how big do you think you could grow it? Well, I've got some personal parameters. I, um, I don't want to get on airplanes regularly for work anymore. <laughs> One. Um, I don't want to have to manage a bunch of obnoxious prima donnas like me. And that was the biggest pain in the job, my rear end, uh, as I got more senior. I don't want that. So, I, you know, I think we could take this business to six or seven million, kind of with the current management structure we have. And at that point, we become more of a corporate entity that would require probably more infrastructure and more administrative than I would personally want to do. And at that point, 
you know, there's a group of VCs out there who are acquiring clinical research sites. Maybe eight or nine years, five or six years, I've talked to them. Uh, I've talked to a couple of other folks who own clinical trial sites around the country. We, we thought about a loose partnership. Yeah. So sort of shared equity joint, and that way we can, we, we can all have three or four different patient recruiters and ship resources around. Maybe something like that. I don't know. I love the autonomy. Um, I just got an email from a broker who's got a couple of clinical research sites for sale in Austin, Texas. Yeah. That she'd like us to bid on. And, you know, if I had to fly, I could fly to Austin, Texas. You know, that could, it would not be bad. There are worse um, places to, to go build a business. There are worse places. Uh, my older son's starting at UNT Asheville. Uh, in the fall. So we're looking for businesses, maybe in Asheville, you might want to retire there. I don't know where, where part of the country you live in, but Asheville's pretty nice up in the mountains. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, kind of my story now is that all I'm really doing is business development and negotiations. I don't do any day-to-day stuff. Um, I've got time on my hands. So I, I'm looking forward, hoping this will help get my name out there a little bit. You know, I'm talking to a couple of fractional CEO, CFO type Headhunters putting people in small startups to you know for a fee to, to to help them. Looking at other business opportunities, it's going to have to be that, that perfect confluence. Um, I had a team of MBAs from a local university build a uh, expansion plan for acquiring another building and building it out, and I'm in the process of flushing that out uh, and starting to network for investors. So I don't know, I can't do all of those obviously, uh, but over the next year, something will. Will rise to that level and get my attention, and we'll, we'll move on. And I'm not, I don't know what it'll do. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of different opportunities, which is always a good place to be. Um, and it sounds like it was the right decision to get off the consulting train uh, oh, I think so, yeah. out of that pyramid. And now you've got autonomy and time and resources, and you don't have to get on planes unless you really want to. Right. I mean, I mean, do do you consider this a happy ending? You're you're not at the end of the story, but. Uh, where you are now. Oh, I think that. so. I think so. It's, it seems are, like a great, a great case study, a great success story. Well, I mean, there are dark days, um, hard days, days you don't sleep. I mean, it's a very different level of stress. Um, you know, if I lost a deal uh, as a consultant, you know, I go find another one. Or the, the, you know, the but the practice will carry you for a year because everybody has good years and bad years. You know, there's nobody here to carry me. You know, yeah. there was a couple of weeks in there. I just don't think I slept at all because I really felt like we were going to fall off a cliff um, because the pipeline was not what, because the backlog was so, so weak compared to what we thought. Um, you know, I didn't build enough working capital into the business and the bank was not, you should, you should have fucking figured that out before we wrote you the check, dude. You know, there was not, <laughs> and, um, you know, I could, it was very, you know, a level of stress and um, fear that you don't really get when somebody else is cutting you a paycheck every two weeks. When when what? That's when somebody's cutting you a paycheck every two weeks. Right. You know, know, so I would tell my family when they wanted to do something, well, we want to get this. I said, look, I've got to earn $5 for us to have a dollar to spend. And now with this business, I got to earn about $30 for us to have a dollar to spend. You know, that's a very different level of commitment to your business. Um, so it's it's had moments where if I had a weak heart or had, didn't have confidence in my abilities, I think you might have thrown the towel in uh, that I never had working in the corporate sector. But yeah, this is definitely the right thing. I, I My only real regret, this sounds, you know, camp and trite, but I wish I'd done this 15 years ago. I mean, I, I really, for the mistakes I've made, um, I would have made those back then and figured stuff out and be further along. And I'm working with this guy who's a 20 year younger version of me who's bought three sites in the last five years. And he's going to be a multimillionaire well before he retires. You know, I think, damn, I wish I thought about doing it back, doing it back then. And, and how old are you, Scott, if you don't mind? Uh, 56. 56. Okay. Yeah. So I got another good 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, thank you very much for doing this and being so transparent about. Sure. The ugly stuff, the numbers, all of it. It's a, it's a really interesting story. Um, is there any, is there, you said you wanted to kind of maybe get your name out there. Is there any way, anywhere that you'd like our direct audience, to direct our audience to, I don't know, find out more about you? I mean, your LinkedIn, obviously. Yeah, so else? LinkedIn is a little out of date. I'm having somebody update that as I do the fractional uh, executive search. 
Uh, but LinkedIn, uh, you've got, do you have my phone number? I can give you that or my email. Sure. My why sure. Why don't you give me both? So it's Scott, S-C-O-T-T underscore wit, W-H-I-T-T at outlook.com. And the number is 919-537-5304. Great, Scott. Well, uh, don't, don't hop off the phone, but I'll, I'll wrap up our recording here. Thank you very much for doing this. I learned a lot. I think our audience will too. Cool. Happy to do it. Thanks.